Hello from Washington. I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor at Bloomberg Government. And with me as always is senior reporter Greg Giroux. We'll kick off this episode of Down Ballot Counts with a discussion about what the increasing possibility of Bernie Sanders becoming the nominee means for congressional races. We'll spotlight a campaign ad running in San Diego that caught our attention. And then we'll talk to a former Democratic congressman who was part of the 2006 wave and is now helping lead a bipartisan organization. We were there with 99% of the precincts counted. Number of other key down-ballot races. This is a very dramatic turn. We will have to look. House will be in order. Chair requests that members clear the aisle, take seats, and cease audible conversation. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down-Ballot Counts. Up first, Jarrow's Jim. Thank you, Kyle. Jarrow's Jim. My number of the week is 53. That's the number of congressional districts in California the most populous state and one of five states holding congressional primaries on Super Tuesday, March the 3rd. Democrats hold a whopping 45 of those 53 districts, Kyle, compared to just six for Republicans, and there are two vacancies. Republicans want to reclaim some of the seven California districts that flipped to the Democrats in the 2018 election, including California's 25th district, a politically competitive area in Southern California, where first-term Democrat Katie Hill resigned last November amid personal controversy, and where there will likely be a runoff in May after a special election on March 3rd, that Super Tuesday. Democratic groups have already intervened in that uh, special election with hundreds of thousands of dollars in spending, hoping for a good showing for their preferred candidate, Assemblywoman Christy Smith. So that's one California election worth watching on March the 3rd. And as you mentioned, Kyle, we'll talk about another California election in our Ad of the Week segment later in the program. But 53, the number of congressional districts in California, that's your Jarrow's Gem of the Week. And remarkably, all 53 of those in 2018 uh, were won by the party that also won it in the presidential race uh, in 2016. So uh, quite an alignment there. All right, up next, we'll talk Bernie Sanders and the effect his frontrunner status is already having on the fight for control of Congress. This is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. After a dominant performance in Nevada on Saturday, Bernie Sanders doesn't have a runaway delegate lead, but he did register a big win in the most diverse state to vote so far. And the potential momentum boost that could provide in South Carolina this weekend and Super Tuesday a few days later could leave everyone else in the dust. That possibility has Democrats running for the House and Senate and even in state races on edge about how that could negatively affect them. That's right, Kyle. And here at Down Ballot Counts, we look at how these presidential elections and presidential voting is going to influence down ballot races, including for the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. And, you know, people are already speculating about how would a Bernie Sanders on the ballot affect Democratic prospects down ballot. The question is, we really don't know. If you talk to the Sanders people, they'll say that he will unleash a unprecedented voter turnout, especially among people who might otherwise not vote or haven't voted in a long time, and that'll help Democrats down ballot. But we have seen the last few days some uh, Democrats from competitive districts and some Democratic members of the Democratic leadership, uh, including Congressman James Clyburn of South Carolina, talk about maybe the challenges that would come with uh, for down ballot Democrats with Sanders uh, at the top of the ticket. I think a big question is, will or would Sanders' appeal filter down to those specific states and districts that Democrats need to win back the Senate and hold their majority in the House? Maybe it doesn't hurt them in, say, a state like Maine or Colorado, states that Republicans are defending Senate seats that voted Democratic for president in 2016. But you have to wonder about states like Arizona or North Carolina, 
um, or Georgia and Arizona, as we noted on last week's program, Senator Martha McSally, the Republican incumbent, already is airing ads linking her Democratic opponent, Mark Kelly, to Bernie Sanders. And in the House, as Congressman Clyburn noted over the weekend, many of the districts that the Democrats won from Republicans in 2018 are upper income suburban districts. And you kind of want to figure out how uh, a Sanders candidacy would play there. We really just don't know. There's a long way to go. And we've seen uh, strange things happen in politics. There are some parallels between, uh, say, Sanders uh, in 2020 and Trump in 2016. Well, you know, that's exactly what I was just going to say. It's feeling a lot like that. And Democrats are already being asked, would you support Sanders as the nominee? And of course, you know, you mentioned, uh, I think, Martha McSally, Mark Kelly, the Arizona Senate race. That's where it's already come up. She's already launched an ad about that. Um, and Mark Kelly is, is getting called out. All he said was, I will support the Democratic nominee no matter who it is. Not a controversial opinion, usually. But when the Democratic nominee is not himself a Democrat and calls himself a Democratic socialist, that's where things could get tricky because all of a sudden Republicans can paint every Democrat on the ballot as socialist. And that's where the issues come up in Texas, where Trump did not do that well in a lot of the suburban uh, districts there, right? And that's how Hillary Clinton uh, kept the Texas uh, margin to with uh, under 10 points. Um, and so the fear is, do the two districts that Democrats won in 2018, do those go back to Republicans? You know, where is Sanders, where are his views not helpful to the party? That's right. You mentioned those two Texas districts. One of them is Texas's seventh congressional district in and around Houston, a big energy center. And one of um, a story that you, you'll find on uh, BGov, our website, about.bgov.com slash news by our colleague Emily, Emily Wilkins, uh, talked about Democrats from oil and gas drilling districts who are distancing themselves from a, a bill supported, actually uh, spearheaded by Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that would ban fracking or what's known uh, formally as hydraulic fracturing. That bill has no chance of becoming law in a uh, Republican-led Senate. I uh, wouldn't pass it. Might not even have the votes to get through a Democratic-led House right now, but it will be a campaign issue. And it does expose a fissure uh, between the Democratic left, which supports a fracking ban, and a Green New Deal blueprint to wean the U.S. economy off of carbon, and uh, some more moderate Democrats, including uh, those who represent oil and gas companies that employ thousands of their uh, constituents. And Emily's story quotes a number of Democratic members from energy production districts, like the Congresswoman from the 7th District, um, Lizzie Fletcher, um, Colin Allred from Texas's 32nd District, Zochi Torres Small from New Mexico's 2nd District, from a that's a vast rural district, energy-producing state, Kendra Horn of Oklahoma City. And I think that story just underscores how they're probably preparing to brandish their political independence and put some political daylight between themselves and the Democratic presidential nominee, whether, it, whether Bernie's the nominee or not. You know, Steve Israel, the former DCCC chairman and a, a congressman from New York, former congressman from New York, uh, he had a quote in the Washington Post today um, where he said, you know, Trump is going to make this a choice between continuing to build this strong economy or a lurch towards socialism, right? And that is not the choice that Democratic leaders want this election to be about. They want it to be about Trump's conduct in office versus someone who's going to come in and restore order. Um, and I think the fear among all the Democrats running down ballot uh, is that Sanders changes the choice. He changes the conversation. Uh, we'll see if that's actually what happens. All right. Well, we will leave it there because up next is our weekly look at a recent campaign ad that stood out to us. Let's take a listen. 
I'm Daryl Issa, and I approve this message. Carl DeMaio, caught on tape trashing President Trump. Trump is crude and unattractive. That's the president we have. Big. Throwing liberal hissy bits whining about Trump's tweets. I don't think what Trump is tweeting is appropriate. DeMaio even cheered on the fake news media trying to sabotage the president. What NBC did with the Access Hollywood tape, they got damaging information out on Donald Trump. And frankly, I'm glad. If you stand with Trump, vote against Carl DeMaio. That was an ad from Daryl Issa, a former congressman who didn't seek re-election in 2018 in California's 49th district, which a Democrat ultimately won. Uh, And he's making a 2020 comeback in the 50th district, which is far more favorable to Republicans. Greg, I can't imagine him running this spot in his old district. Can you? Absolutely not. So this ad shows an image of Trump shaking hands with Daryl Issa before it segues uh, to show Carl DeMaio's negative comments about Trump during the 2016 presidential campaign, which a lot of Republicans, candidates, but also sitting members of Congress today uh, did uh, during the 2016 election before becoming strong Trump allies. And as you mentioned, ISIS is seeking a political comeback in California's 50th district. This is a very Republican area near San Diego. As you noted, he retired at the end of 2018 from a much more politically competitive district, one that actually voted Democratic for president in 2016. ISA may have been wise to retire because he may not have survived in the 2018 Democratic wave nationwide and in California. That was one of those seats, seven seats that flipped from Republican to Democratic. Um, it does, I think, uh, call attention. This ad does call attention to it's uh, likely, if not a prerequisite, for Republicans running in Republican districts in Republican primaries to air ads that show your loyalty to President Trump because he does have uh, strong approval ratings within the Republican electorate. Not a single issue was mentioned in that ad. It was purely about Trump loyalty. And that's not the first one we've seen like that. All right, up next, we'll talk to another former congressman who is back in the arena. But this one in a far different way. From Washington, this is Bloomberg Government's Down Ballot Counts. Now joining Down Ballot Counts is Jason Altmeyer, a former Democratic congressman from Western Pennsylvania who is an advisory board co-chairman of Unite America, which describes itself as a movement of Democrats, Republicans, and independents working to put voters first by fostering a more representative and functional government. Jason, welcome to Down Ballot Counts. Thanks for having me on. Jason, why is Unite America needed right now? There's a lot of things in the country that need to get done, and there's a lot of frustration with the polarization that we see all around us. And I think one of the most important issues that that polarization encompasses is the fact that Congress is incapable of working together. They can't get big issues done, and they they just can't come to agreement on nearly anything. So what Unite America has done is is brought together people who are interested in issues on their own, um, but mostly in in just uh, having a functioning government, in having a Congress that can work together, that can compromise and can get things done. And we're going into different states to uh, advocate for political reforms, such as open primaries, independent commissions for redrawing the lines and gerrymandering and reapportionment. vote by mail, uh, issues like that, where it's going to make a big difference in the type of people that we're sending to Congress. Do you think the structural realities of Congress and and its dysfunction is really contributing to that polarization of the country that you just talked about? It's an outcome of the polarization. Uh, what, What we have is a closed primary system in many states where 
It is the people on the far extremes of both parties who show up in the primaries, who work on campaigns, who contribute to candidates. And most importantly, uh, when they're voting in the primary, if you're a candidate running for office in that setting, you want to appeal to the voters who control your fate. And in increasing numbers, the people who control the fate of the candidates is the people on the extremes. So when you get into office, you're going to message to that group. You're going to pursue policies that are important to that group. And you're by all means going to avoid compromise because that is not what the extremes want. And what we're saying at Unite America is that's not a formula for success. So we are supporting pragmatic candidates in contested primaries who are running against the more extreme candidates because we want people who are going to be willing to work together. And as I say, we're supporting reforms of the election process at the state level that's going to change the incentives for candidates so that they're more willing to compromise when they're elected to office. Jason, you've noted that your group will assist pragmatic candidates running against, um, as you said, more extreme candidates in congressional primaries. The Fix Congress Now PAC, funded by Unite America, has intervened in the March 3 congressional primaries in North Carolina's 11th district, where Mark Meadows is retiring, and in California's 8th district, where Paul Cook is not seeking re-election. Could you talk a bit more about those races and any others where you might uh, intervene? Well, we we uh, try to avoid talking specifically about the races that you're in. You, you are correct, Greg, that it is, it is public information, and, and what, what you put out there is correct. Uh, there has been an investment made in those races. I would just say uh, I want to talk specifically about those particular races, but in general, what we look for are races where there is a clear contrast between candidates in a primary election, not general election, but the primary, where you have a, a pragmatic candidate who's willing to work with both sides, who supports the type of reforms that we're talking about to the electoral process, running against a more extreme candidate uh, who would be unwilling to compromise and, and would, in our opinion, um, add only add to the polarization that we see in Washington. And when we see those dynamics in conjunction with a race that where uh, an involvement by United America could make a difference, uh, that, that's where we decide to, to invest. Mm-hmm. And Jason, what uh, evidence is there that the, uh, some of the reforms that your group is supporting, nonpartisan gerrymandering reform, uh, open primaries, ranked choice voting, and vote by mail, what evidence is there that this would lead to better and more responsive government? There's a movement all across the country to look at these issues from literally from Maine to Alaska. Maine went to ranked choice voting, uh, implemented it in 2018 for their elections. But um, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Florida, Kansas, uh, all of these states in some way, Michigan, uh, have, have looked at, at these issues. I think the best example to your question is California, which for the 2012 election incorporated both open primaries were the top two regardless of party affiliation, go to the general election. And they did an independent commission for their redistricting. And they went from having no competitive congressional seats out of a 53-person delegation to having more than a dozen competitive congressional seats, which may not sound like a lot, but when you're starting from zero, um, that that's making a big difference. And we saw with, with the voting record of different members of Congress and people in Sacramento the incumbents are more likely to work together. They compromise more. They co-sponsor bills more. And it has changed the votes of, of some members. And there's been a, a research that's been done at University of Southern California in conjunction with the Schwarzenegger Center 
that has shown uh, all of those to be true, that, that uh, it has brought a greater sense of compromise and collegiality both in Sacramento and among the congressional delegation. Jason, I caught you on uh, C-SPAN's Washington Journal last week. Uh, you appeared with your fellow co-chair, uh, Carlos Curbelo, a former Republican congressman from Florida. Um, I was wondering, in uh, you know, talking with him, since both of you have left Congress, were there any shared experiences, even though you were in different parties, that that you both found to, to be, you know, part of your experience uh, while, while being there, things that were frustrating? There certainly are. And Cong- uh, Carlos and I did not serve together. We weren't contemporaries in Congress. We had different terms. But we did have the same experiences, and, and we've heard it from other current members and former members um, who share our concern. And, and what the overriding issue is, what I described, that when you are elected to office in these type of primary settings, you are beholden to the extremes of your party, and you're seeing it in both the Democratic and Republican side. And there's a lot of frustration, not just in former members, but on people that are still in Congress today, that they can't be who they want to be. They, they're, they're prohibited from the electoral process. They're prohibited from working with the other side because it will draw a primary. Uh, it's something that's strongly discouraged from their leadership and is strongly discouraged in their districts. And, and it prevents people of good faith from working together. And that's just not a formula for success in the current polarized environment. So there are some current members of Congress who, I mean, obviously some will vote the way they vote because they truly believe it, but there are some whose voting behavior is influenced by primary politics among current members of Congress? Absolutely, absolutely. Many. um, People who are elected to Congress, uh, for the most part, want to get things done. They they go there because they're passionate about issues. They want to make a difference for their communities and for the country. And you can't do that in an environment where people don't talk to each other, people don't work together, and, and people don't compromise and come to consensus. And yes, there are people who are extreme partisans. I mean, you, you see them in the news. Those are the people that you see on the political shows on cable television. But the vast majority of Congress, the rank-and-file members, I think would like to work together and, and would like to get things done. And they're prohibited from doing so because if they do, they're in jeopardy of losing their seats. And Jason, what are some ballot initiatives uh, worth uh, watching this year through the November election? Uh, there, there's a lot that are going on. Uh, there's Alaska is a state you don't think about very often, but Alaska has a pretty unique uh, initiative that they're looking at, and that would be a open primary for all candidates in the beginning, regardless of party affiliation. All voters can vote in that primary. The top four would go to the general election, which would be decided by a ranked choice. You would rank your choices one through four if nobody gets a majority of the vote. The votes are redistributed until somebody does get 50 percent based upon second and third choices. So that would be the most interesting one. I think that's worth watching. But in Florida, there is a ballot initiative that is likely to be on the ballot involving open primaries for the state legislative seats. Um, We had some successes last year. New York City went to ranked choice voting. Uh, Maine, as I said, in 2018 went to ranked choice voting. Pennsylvania and Oklahoma for this year in 2018 are looking at legislative changes to their uh, their redrawing of the lines for the uh, census and the reapportionment process. So there's a lot going on, and depending on the state, some of them are legislative. You know, they're running through their state capitals, and some of them uh, could potentially be referendums where you'll see a vote 
on the ballot. That's what's happening in Florida in the fall. All right, Jason, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, Jason Altmyer, former Democratic congressman from Pennsylvania, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me. This is Down Ballot Counts. It's trivia time on Down Ballot Counts. Each week, I try to stump Kyle and you, the listeners, with a political trivia question. But let's first review last week's question and answer. I asked, who was the most recent U.S. Senator who served two separate non-consecutive tenures in that chamber? Kyle, do you have an answer for me? My initial answer was going to be Slade Gordon, but then I remembered Dan Coates. Is that right? That's a very good guess. Dan Coates would have been my first guess as well, but the Senate, the correct answer is John Kyle of Arizona, who has a last name that is a homophone of your first name, I might add. John Kyle served in the Senate from 1995 to 2013 and then retired, but in September of 2018, he was appointed to the Senate on a temporary basis to fill the seat vacated by the death of John McCain. Kyle only served a few months at the end of 2018 and was succeeded by another appointee, Republican Martha McSally, who is seeking to defend the seat in a 2020 special election. So, John Kyle, that's the answer to last week's question. But Dan Coates is a very good answer, and that was the first one I thought of, too, when I devised this question. So I almost got caught up by my own question. Now for this week's question. In what year was Bernie Sanders first elected to Congress? Again, that question is, in what year was Bernie Sanders first elected to Congress, the U.S. House Representatives. You can email your answer to bgovpodcast at bgov.com or tweet your answer to the Bloomberg government Twitter handle at bgov and use the hashtag downballotpod. We'll reveal the answer and ask a new question on next week's program. That's it for us today. But before we go, Greg, what are you watching this week? Colin, watching the Super Tuesday congressional primaries in five states with a total of 113 districts, because this is the last full week of the campaign before the big vote on March the 3rd. I'm also watching the U.S. Senate, where there are two anti-abortion bills uh, coming up for votes that could be used as grist in campaign ads and communications for the November election. And I'll note here that Michael Bloomberg is also seeking the Democratic presidential nomination. Bloomberg is the majority owner of Bloomberg Government's parent company. The producer for Down Ballot Counts is David Schultz. You can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Trigstad and at Greg Giroux. And be sure to check out all the great politics coverage on Bloomberg Government's website, about.bgov.com. We'll talk to you next week. You probably have a lot of questions about the environment. Well, so do we. Are we talking like radioactive chemicals? Is this becoming sort of irrelevant if the U.S. doesn't participate in this? What's going on here? How far did the Trump administration go? Is mining really better down where it's wetter? Climate change, chemicals, water pollution, you name it. If it's in the environment, we're talking about it. Listen to Bloomberg Environment's official podcast, Parts Per Billion, wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, get up-to-the-minute reporting at our website, news.bloombergenvironment.com.